The following is a sermon from Pastor David Salinas of Sure Foundation, a church located in Woodside, Queens, New York, the world's most diverse community. For more information and for more audio content, go to sure-foundation.org. There she stands, the bride, looking gorgeous at the threshold of the sanctuary. And the cello strums the first note of Pachelbel's Canon in D. And arm and arm with her daddy, who is so happy and sad all at the same time. She takes the first steps down that way. And the groom is standing at the front, and he, he turns and he sees his bride-to-be. And he is fighting back the tears because he has never seen her look so amazing. And as she approaches with her dad, he goes up and he whispers, thank you. And dad is fighting back tears of his own. And the handsome groom and the gorgeous bride step to the front, to that altar. And the pastor motions everyone to sit. The last note of canon in D is played. And then the service goes on. And then he says them. Then he speaks them. Those words, those most famous of all words on wedding days, right? 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. So we're in the month of love, and is that not just the perfect vision or picture that you could think of? So I almost kind of hate to do this, but yeah, I gotta, I gotta burst your bubble. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, perhaps the one wedding text that has been preached on at weddings more than any other portion of God's word in scripture has nothing to do with wedding days, not one thing. Now before you start to boo and before you start to like say, pastor, what are you talking about? What I mean by that is this, yes, the words of 1 Corinthians 13 the call to love, apply very much to married life and are beautiful words to place on the hearts of anybody entering this state of holy matrimony. What I mean by that is this, that when the Apostle Paul was inspired to write these words, it wasn't because his college roommate or his best friend was getting married. It was because one of his most beautifully diverse, highly gifted churches was becoming divided. 1 Corinthians 13 is not about the passionate love of a man and a woman on their wedding day. It's about the Christ-like love of Christians every day. Do you, do you understand then why these words and this letter are so important for us here? I mean, we're Christians, but there's something else. You, Sure Foundation Lutheran Church, 
just happen to be the most gorgeously diverse, highly gifted church that I personally have ever had the pleasure and the honor and the grace of pastoring. And I mean that. But I can kind of hear it right now, can you? God telling Satan, but have you considered my servant, Sure Foundation Lutheran Church? There is no church like it. And can you almost hear Satan say, oh yeah? Let me at them. Because after I get through with them, their love will be so cold, the bleeding New York City, city winners are going to seem like a tropical paradise by comparison. And we know that this is the devil's aim, and we know that if he succeeds, we are doomed to fail. If our love grows cold, we will not grow in Christ, and we will not reach this city. But the converse is also true. If the Christ-like love of God breathes and permeates and moves through every fiber of our being and animates us, we cannot lose. We cannot fail because this is God's promise to us. And so, dear people, join me. And let's experience together true love's kiss, the kiss of the Holy Spirit, the agape love of Christ Jesus. Let's pour over these words and be loved like we have never been loved and be empowered to love to a whole new level of beautiful, wonderful, crazy so that we can be the best church that we have ever been and the best Christians that we have ever been to. Come with me. Here it is. What we've been talking about all of these weeks and this month through 1 Corinthians. There it is. That most excellent of ways. Come. Open up your worship folders. 1 Corinthians 13. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding, a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith, a superhuman faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, every penny, and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let me say it again. This 
is not your mama's wedding sermon text. And by that, I just mean this, that this is not your mushy love poem inscribed on an overpriced Valentine's Day card. These words that we just read, and you could probably already sense it, happen to be some of the most indicting, convicting words of God's holy law and all of his holy scripture. Do you remember why Paul wrote these words? Do you remember what was going on? Let me ask you this. Do you remember what Paul wrote the chapter before in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Do you remember what comes there? He says this. Let me refresh this. You are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it, an indispensable part of it. You are all equally loved by God, but you are all uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit on purpose. Jesus has arranged you just the way you are in the part of the body, his body, for the common good. Do you remember why Paul wrote that? Because the Corinthians were not acting like the body of Christ. They were not loving each other like Jesus loved them, not even close. They were certainly not working together like parts of a body for the common good. The opposite. The opposite. Do you know that at their worst, the Corinthians were suing each other? Can you imagine the people here taking each other to court? At their best, they didn't care about one another instead of appreciating each other, instead of encouraging one another to use their gifts for the glory of God and the good of the church, they were, they were competing with one another. They were putting each other down. Well, my gifts are better than yours, and my way to worship and my way to pray is better than yours. And what was the result of all of this? What was the result of all of this competition, all of this rivalry, all of this infighting? They were dismembering the very body of Christ to which they belonged. And so Paul has this in mind. He has this in mind. And so you can see that when Paul is writing these words, he doesn't have just these Valentine's hearts just popping up in his head and poofing like this and, ah, oh, we're all just... He is on fire. And he says, people of God, I don't get it. Why are you acting like this? This is not the way of Christians. This is not the way of Christ. Let me show you a far better way. Let me show you the most excellent way. This ain't your mama's wedding sermon text. Because right after Paul, he hooks us. He gets us with that first century clickbait. Let me show you the most excellent way. And you're leaning in, right? You're leaning in. Okay, Paul, what is it? What's his most excellent way? And he takes the Bible and he backhands us with a truth that leaves us squirming in our seats. And what Paul does next is just, <laughs> it's wild. So he takes the best gifts that we could have, the greatest virtues 
the noblest acts of sacrifices that human beings can display. And he kind of inflates them like a, like a balloon of goodness. And I mean, he's inflating this balloon to an almost superhuman level of goodness. So he, he talks about, if I have, if I can speak in the tongues of men, if I can speak English and Spanish and Chinese and Russian and every language under the sun, and then he blows up the balloon to an even greater level, if I can speak angelese. But have not love, what does he say that I am? What does the text say that I am? Only what? I'm only a gong or a clanging cymbal. So if my speech, if your speech, if your words and my words are not filled and inflated with love, not only are our words, our communication, which is important, not only is that not beneficial, it's detrimental. Without love, my words end up becoming nothing but an annoying, ear-piercing sound. Like when I'm walking down over the overpass at, of the L, uh, LIC there in Massbeth, and I've got my mind thinking on things, and then, of course, invariably, that horn blares. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, think about this. If you knew the Bible as well as your Lord Jesus, who knows all things and who can fathom all mysteries, if you had that kind of knowledge, if we had that kind of knowledge, if we gave every penny in our checking account to the poor, if we sacrificed our very lives, but did not do it with love moving us and animating us, what does Paul say that we are? Nothing. What do we accomplish? All right. I love you deeply, but here it comes. <laughs> Hard question. Do you love each other? Do you love the Hispanic congregation with whom you can't always communicate well? Do you love our noisy, rambunctious children in church who sometimes can screech like a gong? And it's a small space. It's a distraction at times. Children, do you love the adults and Jesus enough to maybe... Maybe stay quiet and well-behaved even during a long Pastor Selena sermon? Are you always patient? You know what that word in Greek was used for? It's, it's interesting. It's, it's the word it's, it's reflected as uh, long-suffering, but often it was used for when liquid took a long time to boil. So do you, does it take you a long time to get frustrated? Does it take you a long time to get irritated and angry, or does your anger boil over quickly? Are you always kind? So are you never rude? Are you never condescending or dismissive, like ignoring people, like people are talking to you, and all of a sudden, you kind of turn your back and walk away? Are you always considerate of the feelings of other people? And do you always have their best interest in mind? And do you always think about, about their weaknesses and their failings and their struggles and their hurts and have compassion on them because of that, even when they're being very frustrated and annoyed, and annoyed with you. 
do you always, do you never keep a record of wrongs, or maybe do you keep a running tally of past hurts? And it's just so hard for you to let go. Let me ask another hard question. What do you justify with your talents and responsibilities? So you're smart, I mean really smart. How do you treat the kids in class who aren't, or the family member who isn't? So you like to work hard, and you do. You spend a lot of time at work and put in a lot of hours. Do you always make the people that are closest to you feel loved? Love is patient, and love is kind, and it does not envy, and it does not boast, and it is not proud, it is not self-seeking, not easily angered. I hear those words, and man, sometimes I'm such a gong. Sometimes. I am nothing. This ain't your mama's wedding sermon text, is it? <laughs> but there's something so beautiful, something so good about being confronted with, with a passage like this. I can't think of, and I was talking with my wife about this yesterday, I can't think about another facet of God's law that he puts up before us that so clearly reveals to us our great and desperate and constant need for his son. Because we, I mean, we just think about everything that, that this requires. I mean, love, like this is the greatest command in the Bible. That is what Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor as, your, as yourself, Jesus even takes this command in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, to a whole new level of crazy, as we talked about. Love one another as Jesus has loved you, and we recognize instantly, but that is impossible. It's impossible to keep. It's impossible to do, sometimes even on the smallest levels, let alone to a large degree, because this agape, this love that Jesus is talking about, it flies completely in the face and is contrary to our natural makeup as sinful human beings, right? That nature that has been per permeated and infected with sin. Love draws us out to think about that other person and to seek the best interest of somebody who is not named me. But, but my own nature is like this magnetic pull that turns me completely inward so that as I move about through life, that's always what I'm thinking about, my needs and my wants and what's in my interest. And sacrificing that is hard. It creates that clash. Am I wrong or am I right about that? Love is hard. It's a trial. It's a cross. Because Do you understand what love bids you to do? It asks you to take the risk of introducing pain into your life. Who here likes getting hurt? Raise your hand. I mean, it, when you are patient with somebody, when you are kind to somebody, when you forget the wrongs, what is the risk that you're taking? That people can take advantage of that, that they're going to take advantage of your love and of your kindness. And you're patient with them, and they're not going to be patient with you. And still, God says, be patient and kind. 
period. No matter what. No matter if the other people are patient and kind with you back. Isn't that painful? I mean, that's, that's almost like, how can you ask that of me? Who's going to be patient with me then? Who's going to take care of my needs? Don't I have needs? Isn't it, is it, will there not come a time when it's my turn to be loved? And so we see this and, oh my goodness, Lord, please come and please, for the love of a bridegroom that could actually just pick me up and forgive me and cleanse me and give me just one ounce of strength and power and might to take that first step down that most excellent way. Hey, you know what? You know what? I think this might just be the perfect wedding sermon text after all. You see, every wedding service, like every Sunday, is a worship of Christ. What I'm getting at is this, that the love of Jesus that we so desperately and constantly need as we have his command of love smacked in our face, that's the very love that is ours. You see, Paul, in these words, under inspiration, and the Lord Jesus, would have us do with this portion of Scripture what we are to do with every portion of Scripture, embedded in the context of the whole of the Bible. When we do that, we can do something amazing. And, and we're going to do something here in a couple of seconds that maybe you have never thought of or done before with this particular passage of God's Word. We are going to be able to insert Jesus into the love. And here's what I mean. The Bible tells us that God is love. Yeah? The Bible also tells us that Jesus is God. He's agape with flesh and blood and bones and skin on, right? So Jesus is love. Then, in Psalm 72, King Solomon, I kid you not, you know what he calls Jesus? The most excellent of men. Are you kind of seeing where I'm going with this? This is amazing. So now, I want you to read these words of 1 Corinthians 13, but I want you to put Jesus into the love. And now, I will show you the most excellent one. Jesus is patient. He is a 20-gallon drum of water over a single flame. Do you know how long it would take for that water to boil? That's how patient Jesus is with you and me in our weakness. That's how long it takes for him to get angry with you over the things that you have done wrong, even over your puny love. Jesus is kind. He knows us, and so he has every right to say the harshest things about us. But what does he say about us? He gives us the most amazing compliments that we could ever have. He takes us in his arms and twirls us like the bride and just says out loud, you are my beloved. You are my crown. You are my joy. You are my life. You are my portion. You are my blessing. Jesus 
is not proud. Even though he is the king of kings and lord of lords, and even though his name is above every name, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, to lift you and me from the dust of the earth and seat us in his heavenly banquet, exalted forever and ever and ever. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. In fact, he even says, I forget them all. In a few moments, we're going to walk up to that communion rail, that communion table, and our hearts will appropriately come with that repentant cry, Lord Jesus, please forgive my puny love. And he's going to look at the nail scars in his hands, and through the pastor, he's going to feed us the very body and blood that paid for our sins and our, atoned for our sins on the cross, and he's going to look at us, and he's going to say with a smile, what are you talking about? What sin? What stuff? What failed love? Jesus always protects, and he always hopes, and he always trusts, and he always perseveres. Jesus never fails. And so that means that despite our love that sometimes does, in Christ, we are never nothing. We are always everything to God because even our faulty love in Jesus is perfect in God's eyes. Man. Since the most excellent one took the most excellent way for us, sure foundation. Let's achieve the holy superlatives Holy Spirit. Let's take the greatest way and achieve the greatest thing. Can I encourage you and can I show you one way to do that? Permit me to do this. In Florida last year, this was amazing to me. There was a woman who went to the beach with her family and she had two boys a nine-year-old and an 11-year-old, who ventured out into the water a little bit, playing in the waves when a, a, a strong riptide developed and yanked them out to sea. They were flailing. The mom saw her boys, and so she panicked. And what did she do? What every mom does, rushed right out to save her sons. She got stuck. And then the other family members heard her screaming, and one by one, they went out into the middle of the ocean, and one by one, they were stuck until nine family members were lost and dying out in the middle there of the ocean. So people recognized you can't go out in, into this. This is too strong. So one woman got, had this idea. She, she braced herself, set herself solidly on the beach, and then she asked another woman to come and grab her hand. And that woman asked somebody else to grab her hand, and they formed this human chain of 40 people going out into the ocean, and the 40th person reached out and saved the family. Can I, can I show you a picture of what that looks like? You see what I'm seeing? Do you see what I'm seeing? A line of people of different ethnicities, different ages, Men, women, old and young, linked together, arm in arm, in an unbreakable phalanx of love, into a winning team, firmly planted on something solid 
reaching out to the lost and to the dying. That sounds like somebody that I know. Their foundation. Let's go forward, taking that most excellent path together. And let's cheer as we watch Jesus do through us the greatest thing.